0: Welcome to Disney's Four Scores. I'm John Burlingame. This podcast series brings together the most accomplished film and television composers working today, and reveals the emotional journeys, inspirations, and unique challenges of their work. This is the first episode of Two with the legendary Alan Menken. It's an honor to welcome eight-time Oscar winner, 11-time Grammy winner, Emmy and Tony winner, not to mention certified Disney legend, Alan Menken to the podcast. His scores and songs for such classics as The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, and Pocahontas are
1: part of the soundtrack of our lives. Welcome, Alan. Thank you, John. You didn't didn't mention the Razzie. (laughs) I thought about it. (laughs) (laughs) The Golden Razzie Award. Yay! (laughs) By the way, what was it for? It was for High Times, Hard Times from Newsies. Oh. And the same night that I was at the Oscars for Beauty and the Beast and I was in the press room and one of the press people from the back said, hey, how do you feel about winning the Razzie for Worst Song of the Year? (laughs) I said, you're kidding me. Totally appropriate to uh, the spirit of the award. So, Alan, do you come from a musical family? Well, yes, in terms of, you know, uh, interest. I have an uncle who's a, French horn players played with the Pittsburgh Symphony and um, San Francisco Opera. My dad played boogie-woogie piano. Oh, great. My mother was an actress and a dentist's wife. All the men in the family actually were of a dental persuasion. So are you the black sheep? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you could say black sheep or, as the rest of the family calls me, the nachos machine. because (laughs) It's Yiddish for good news, because... you know, every other day, there's, oh, Alan won an award, or Alan, you know, I don't know how it's happened. Because in school, I was a terrible student. I, You know, I couldn't concentrate. I didn't know what it's was going to do with my life. I said, well, I guess I'll just keep sitting at the piano and doodling. And somehow it worked its way into being something.
0: Do you remember when music first had a, a
1: kind of profound effect on you? I, I, mean, I do remember from a very young age, music being powerful. But I have to say, and I'm going to sound like a shill for Disney, but (laughs) I think it was Fantasia. Oh. Somehow the wedding of those incredible videos with that incredible music formed a connection between story and song for me that has lasted my whole life.
0: And that's interesting because it's, of course, orchestral and not song-driven, really. When I speak of Fantasia...
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I also grew up in a family that loved stage musicals. But I remember as a kid, I loved Beethoven's Sixth Symphony. The sixth was the one. And why? Well, it was because it was in Fantasia.
0: And it conjures up images.
1: And Night on Bald Mountain. And, you know, obviously my tastes have expanded since then. But the earliest memories I have have to do with those early movies, and creating a story, whether real or imagined, that exists behind a piece of music has been very powerful for me.
0: So when did you first put pencil to score paper in terms of maybe thinking about a career as a songwriter?
1: Like every kid of my generation, of our generation, when the Beatles and Bob Dylan showed up on the scene, and we knew that that girls kind of screamed when <laughs> they played, uh, I think my interest intensified. But also, I was deeply affected by music in general, and certainly in terms of songwriting. Yes, I I remember growing up in a in a household with Rogers and Hammerstein and Frank Lesser and and, and George Gershwin and Rodgers and Hart, you name it. But then in the 60s, our generation's music became very much the soundtrack of my life. That was really my connection to music. And then when I went back into musical theater, the influences that preceded the musical theater influences and the classical influences married to the pop influences and somehow created a style that, uh, was mine. Mm. What was your first
0: pre-Disney success? Well, Little Shop of Horrors was the big one. And that was in 82, in terms of the New York stage, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Leading up to that, you know, I struggled as a, you know, I was a struggling songwriter I wrote songs for Sesame Street. I I accompanied ballet classes and accompanied singers in clubs. Howard Ashman's of my first musical was an um, adaptation of Kurt Vonnegut's novella God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater. And that was in 79. And I had, you know, lots of other musical attempts prior to Little Shop, but Little Shop is the one that exploded.
0: And that's you and lyricist Howard Ashman together.
1: How did you meet Howard? Loving lyricist, book writer, director, genius Howard Ashman. Correct. (laughs) He was looking for a composer. He hadn't written a musical before. And it was recommended that you know, among others, he met with me, and that's how we met. We were a, kind of an arranged marriage. Uh, Lehman Engel and Maury Yeston both made the recommendation, and Howard came to my apartment. Now, we know Maury
0: Yeston as a fellow Broadway songwriter. Uh, who was Lehman Engel?
1: Lehman Engel actually ran the BMI Musical Theater Workshop. Lehman was a very well-known, prestigious conductor, and composer and musical director, but he he conducted Porky and Best. In the latter part of his career, he took on running a workshop at BMI for songwriters, uh, teaching them about the craft of writing for musical theater. And Lehman was kind of an expert at that because he studied the craft of that from the pit of the musical. Lehman was a uh, amazing teacher and a very early, proud gay man Uh, at a time where that was, you know, closeted. Mm. He was amazing. He was just a great, great, great man.
0: So you and Howard had an off-Broadway success, right, with Little Shop?
1: Yes. The the, the producers wanted us to move to Broadway, and Howard refused. He said the sensibility of this musical is off-Broadway. And so you wound up making a movie of it. It ended up going to the movies. It ended up going to Broadway later. For me, the greatest seminal success of Little Shop still is the the (laughs) hole-in-the-wall WPA theater. No experience will ever duplicate that for me.
0: That's so exciting to hear about.
1: Although, when you wound up making a movie
0: out of it, that was your first experience with cinema, right?
1: Um, yes. Well, there had been, you know, smaller uh, forays into cinema, but this was, yes, the big one. And I did not score it. Miles Goodman... Oh, yeah. ...wrote about nine minutes of basically connective filler, some organ licks and some little gestures musically, and some adaptation of the score. But because my music had been written for the stage, it was not eligible for any awards. So after Little Shop came out, the, the, the Golden Globe nomination showed up, and Little Shop was nominated for Best Score from Miles Goodman. He a so, a you know, wonderful guy and a wonderful I think, I composer, and the Oscars made up for it by nominating "Mean Green Mother from Outer Space" for Best Song. Right, but after that, I was encouraged that I should probably consider scoring my own musicals as well, if only to keep the control over you know all of the music. But also, you know, a little bit of an ego thing. there, it's like you know I'd rather see my name.
0: <laughs> Ariel, listen to me. It's a mess. Life
1: under the sea is better than anything they got up there.
0: Now, you and Howard Ashman are, at this point, a pretty solid partnership. How did you wind
1: up going to Disney? When did The Little Mermaid enter the picture? Disney ended up coming into the picture because one of the producers of Little Shop of Horrors was David Geffen. Geffen produced the show from the L.A. side of things. And um, when Jeffrey Katzenberg and Michael Eisner and, and Frank Wells became the people running Disney, I imagine that David Geffen was kind of whispering in in their ears, um, saying this guy, Howard Ashman, really is a resource, especially because Roy Disney wanted to give a new birth to Disney Animation at that time, which it was pretty dormant. So it was really looking at Howard as somebody who understood how to use music in a stylistic way to sort of brand a story, to give it a life with a musical point of view. And then Howard brought me in uh, as his composer. And for me at the time, after Little Shop of Horrors, I had collaborated with a a man named Tom Ion, who had written Dreamgirls. So Tom Ion and I wrote a musical together called Kicks. And Howard had teamed with Marvin Hamlisch. Oh, on Smile. on Smile. So for me, the headline was, oh, I'm going to work with Howard again. And it happens to be this Disney project, which kind of was a dream come true, but still, we didn't know what it was going to become. All I knew was at the time, my daughter had just been born, and all of these Disney movies had been re-released on um, VHS. And we were watching them, and, you know, I was agog with wonder at how wonderful these movies are. And it was, you know, sort of a rediscovery of them. And then comes a call from Howard, and fate brought us together with uh, the Disney tradition. It's so interesting to me, because we now
0: mark uh, The Little Mermaid as the beginning of what's widely known now as the Disney Renaissance, which sort of rejuvenated the whole idea of the animated musical at the house where basically that concept was born decades earlier. So it's interesting to me that somebody at Disney thought, maybe we should apply musical theater
1: principles to this? Um, Or was um, it more you guys? Well, I think it was a combo. I think it was mostly Howard, to be honest. But first of all, Disney animated musicals always reflected to a degree the the musical theater of its day. Maybe not entirely contemporaneously, but you can see a lot of Sigmund Romberg in the very (laughs) earliest. Michael Eisner was actually a theater major in college. That's interesting. Um, Peter Schneider who ran animation actually had been the company manager of Little Shop of Horrors. And and yes, Howard had very strong feelings about making sure that we were always driving story forward and always stylistically rooted in a world and for, for me Little Mermaid is our sequel It's a little shop of horrors as much as it is our debut with Disney. Um, It was very much in the same musical theater mold as Little Shop of Horrors. I know that's a bit of a stretch for most people, but we used to jokingly call Part of Your World somewhere that's wet. And Howard (laughs) would really educate the animators and sit and talk to them about how songs should drive a story, how you establish basic themes through songs, through music, through lyrics, how you take those threads and you weave a score out of them. It's always been a constant education to this day, the effect of the lessons we learn in musical theater, telling a story in film. And at the same time, these songs also belong to the medium of animation, which is uniquely its own. You want to have songs that will allow the animators to go crazy and do wonderful things. Now, on stage, yes, you want to have a production number, and I suppose those things are analogous, but they're not always the same. Like What you do on Under the Sea, all these wonders under the sea, translating that to the stage is a challenge. <laughs> they may be analogous, but they're not the same, and they don't necessarily come in the same spot. So, you know, each medium has its own rules
0: I've often wondered – very often it's the songwriters and the book writer, basically three people, who more or less create these shows. But when you're talking about film, it's such a collaborative medium that there are often many, many people in a room or many voices or many opinions. And I'm wondering, was that a a struggle to sort of come to terms with
1: because you weren't always the people in charge? Or were you? No. (laughs) Well, in terms of full picture of what I do in film – Uh, writing songs and score I like to say I sort of start out as the king and I ended up as the maid Um, (laughs) um, because yes when you're writing a score you are in fact saying look in order to have the score function we need to have this story structure that will support the score and we need to work our way into this moment it went even to the level of in a sense, musicalizing the pace of the words. An example is with the Be Our Guest. Howard always imagined it would be, what, what is dinner without a little music? Music, bong, music, music. And then, and then he does his little speech. And you know, we, we would have battles sometimes with animators or, with, or directors about, no, it's gotta be specifically that. And I'm sure they thought we were being, you know, pains in the butt, <laughs> or or egomaniacs. But there's a logic to that, and it's a matter of bringing your gut, as a musical theater dramatist, to a form that really is not that form.
0: Mm, yes, of course. One of the things I love about Mermaid is the various styles of music. There's sea shanties at the beginning and there's a there's a sense of Caribbean calypso in it and and I'm wondering was forgive me was the world your oyster? <laughs> at the, <laughs> at, sorry. At that point, I mean,
1: could you just think out of the box? Could you go anywhere? Well, no, it was very very specifically dictated by the story except for one pivotal decision. Initially, you know, Sebastian was a stuffy English crab, and Howard said, "I think it would be a lot more entertaining and also original if we made him a sort of a Trinidadian crab or a, <laughs> a Caribbean crab. We would have to kind of very <laughs> full of himself. He's a, sort of a an erudite court composer in a world that is, you know, sort of <laughs> a little more earthy." Yeah. Based, sure. and he's the pearl in the oyster. <laughs> and um, we'll keep those, those nautical <laughs> references going. So once we made that decision, then it opened up the door to Calypso and to uh, certain kinds of Caribbean influenced pop with, with uh, Under the Sea and Kiss the Girl.
0: Disney's Four Scores is brought to you by the Four Scores playlist, featuring music and interview clips from each composer featured in the podcast series, including Alan Menken's score and songs for the animated and live-action movies for The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, and Aladdin, plus favorites including Pocahontas, Hercules, Enchanted, Tangled, and many more. The Four Scores playlist is available on all major music streaming services. Obviously, Little Mermaid went on to win you best score and the two of you best song. And I'm wondering how you look back at that now. Was it a surprise, the success
1: of the Little Mermaid? Well, I when we were nominated for Little Shop of Horrors, we showed up at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion and went to our seats, and they were in the middle of a this endless row. <laughs> which should have like, probably told us something. We weren't expected to win. And I remember sitting there, and Levi Stubbs came out and sings the song, and I go, "Whoa!" I brought the house down, and I reach into my pocket because I have my little speech, you know, or notes there in the pocket. All ready to go. Howard. Yeah, Howard reaches out his hand, p- puts my hand back. He says, you're not giving any speeches tonight. Don't worry. <laughs> but with Little Mermaid, we show up there, and there we are right on the aisle. Oh. And people were talking about it. And "Under the Sea" was a very unique kind of song to be nominated, especially at that time, for best song. It was kind of a phenomenon. So, no, I was not shocked, terrified. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, the prospect of going from being, you know, an off-off Broadway composer to to being uh, an Oscar winner was was quite surreal, um, and. There's the backstage drama, which is, you know, Howard was sick at that time. Yeah. And I didn't know until after the Oscars that very night, well, I didn't actually find until a couple days later what it actually was. He was very good at giving us reasons why he had lost so much weight and why he was looking the way he was looking and why he was hooked up to, you know, these machines. Oh, it was a hernia, it was this, it was that. But now as I look back, the drama of that evening of course, you know, is incredible. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, yet you and Howard, I think, then embarked on Aladdin next, right?
1: Well, yes and no. We were literally simultaneously with Little Mermaid, we were working on Aladdin. And the treatment of Aladdin we were working on was much closer to what we ended up doing on Broadway than what was in the animated film. It was He had the three sidekicks, and there was a whole, you know, score, shadow score that ended up being resurrected later. And it was, very, it was very cheeky about the Arab world, which led people at Disney to be a little nervous. <laughs> <laughs> and it got shelved in place of Beauty and the Beast, which came later. So the next one we were actually working on, was least, was Beauty and the Beast. But we were yes, basically working on, the th- at one point, the, th- the three of them simultaneously going from one to the other to the other.
0: Boy, that's incredible to think about because they all seem so different. And, of course, they're all masterpieces in in their own way. And I have to say that my wife and I were watching Beauty and the Beast again over the weekend, and we both still feel that it is a completely flawless film and an utter masterpiece. And I'm wondering what role you and Howard played in shaping that story and finding the right moments.
1: Well, the real masterstroke was the enchanted objects. Because without it, basically, it's a story of <laughs> of a girl and a beast having dinner every night. <laughs> <laughs> Whose idea was was the
0: enchanted object concept?
1: Um, I'm pretty sure it was Howard. And you know, the idea it creates a family around the beast and around Belle, and it gives us the vehicle we need to have the score opened up. And that was, you know, one of Howard's geniuses, along with the genie and having, you know, the genie become what he became. And it, I think it's, it is both of us, I have to say. I grew up with my dad playing Fats Waller at the piano, um, and I loved Fats Waller. And so the idea that—
0: We're speaking about Aladdin now. Now we're speaking about Aladdin. Yeah. I've always been curious about that choice. I mean, you're, you're in an Arabian Nights fantasy, and, and yet the genie's song—
1: because the genie of the ring was characterized in the original story as being black and having an earring and being kind of almost like looking like a hipster and then i went to uh fat swaller because it was just such it's such celebratory life-affirming music and lyrics and so that really created the vocabulary for for the genie back to beauty and the beast with the enchanted objects having a lumiere be like a maurice chevalier there's always in what we did. A sense of a wink at a cultural icons. In a way, um, touchstones that we understand and an audience understand and give us a shortcut to understanding the characters, the tone, the storytelling, and to create an original world for the storytelling that's informed by all of those shared associations that we have. That's been a constant part of my career ever since is Finding what is the vocabulary, because that's intrinsic to how you grab an audience's imagination and basically enlist them on a journey is to create a world that they go, oh, I get it. I want to be in this world.
0: And I find that so interesting because this also is more part of the appeal to the adult audience and and as opposed to what I think was the old cliche, which was that Disney animated movies were for
1: kids. Oh, absolutely. And what's not for kids. I mean, the kids could come alone for the ride. But again, I go back to The Little Shop of Horrors. We thought kids couldn't come because, oh, my God, the plant eats people and oh, there's blood. And, and of course, really, it brings out the kid in people. Even though they don't know the specific tradition, when there's a specific world tradition at work in telling a story, somehow a young audience just smells it and feels it and gravitate towards it. But, you know, the, the broader audience is where you reach the, the, the child in everyone. And that's really, I think, so much a key to the success of what we've done.
0: So at the beginning of Beauty and the Beast, you have this wonderful number, Bell, and it seems to have a bit of operetta about it. And I thought to myself, operetta, how did they sell that at Disney?
1: Well, it's yeah, I, I don't think we were thinking operetta Um there's a little bit of She Loves Me, Good Morning, Good Day. Also, there's a little bit of the influence of Beethoven's Sixth Symphony in it. There's two brains, right? Yeah. <laughs> you, got, you got this brain above your shoulders which analyzes and, and, and remembers things and has all the facts, but you have that brain down in your gut that just goes, oh, this is what this is what it feels like it should be. And I'm blessed with having a... Uh, a good connection to that brain. And I just felt those influences, they felt right. And of course, we knew we were going from this prologue and this dreamlike, you know, little town, it's a quiet, you know, she comes, just Belle coming out of the cottage into the frenzy of the town and she's being taken through the town. So you want to create a motor that takes you through that. It's hard to, you know, it's hard to know, hard to define where the colors came from. Again, I'm going to get a little ADD on you and go to Newsies. I have no idea where the colors that became Newsies came from other than it felt like the youthful exuberance of these turn-of-the-century newsboys. And I have to go back and analyze it's sort of one part ragtime and one part Motown and one part you know, American in Paris or something um, or on the town. So In a sense, it's pulling on these, again, these stylistic threads and then weaving with them and then seeing, oh, that seems to work. (laughs) Or going, that doesn't work and throw it out and try again.
0: I have to ask you about casting, too, because I have absolutely, from the moment I first heard it, loved actor Jerry Orbach's French accent as Lumière particularly in singing uh, Be Our Guest.
1: Be our guest, be our guest. Put our service to the test. Tie your napkin round your neck, sherry, and we provide the rest.
0: Is the casting something that you guys contributed to, or maybe even made those decisions?
1: I think we contributed. And I'd like to say that Howard probably contributed more than I did. and jerry was perfect and angela oh my god you you know the angela lansbury angela lansbury there was a show called upstairs downstairs and you have mrs bridges was the head of the housekeeping staff right and was the model for mrs potts really maurice chevalier was the model for lumiere i wish howard was here to tell you who the you know the model for cogsworth was I like it, my job to be like an architect. I design a house that others will live in. So I'm not that oriented towards casting personally. I set the prototype, and then I let others, you know, contribute who they think might fit that prototype. And the director will have, and book writer will probably have even a, a more pivotal influence on that decision than I will, so long as the person can sing the way I'd like them to sing. When, they, when Robin Williams was chosen to play the genie, I, I was like, what? He, what, what I, I, that's Waller's the model. And you choose Robin Williams? How could you? <laughs> in
0: retrospect,
1: that's kind of interesting. In retrospect, it was just fine. <laughs> Jerry, of course, also was dyed in the wool Broadway. Yes. Um, and was
0: Jerry Orbeck, now we're talking about.
1: Sorry, yeah. Jerry Orbeck. And was perfect for Lumiere. Actually, Now that I think about it, as I talk to you, I remember the casting sessions. I do. Yeah. Um, I think for a long time, we were drawing on on Broadway talent.
0: We we lost Howard in 1991 before he could accept his second Oscar for the title song, of Beauty and the Beast.
1: How did Howard's death affect you? Oh God. Um, Well, the process of Howard's passing I think deeply affected the work that we were, were doing. The highs became higher and the lows became lower. People have, have speculated that certain songs were influenced by his feelings about, about the AIDS crisis and, and, and the stigma attached to it. And I'm sure Howard and all of us who knew Howard would say there was no intention whatsoever to bring his own personal life into the work. It was all about the characters and the story. The, the drama of having him, you know, step-by-step step dying as we were doing both in Mermaid and Beauty and Aladdin was um, excruciating. I don't know how have, have words to describe it, what it was like to be in a room having Howard wanting to record, you know, one little... Thing I was working on, having the mic be a little intermittent, and I'm at the piano, and next thing I know, a Walkman pro gets flung across the room and smashed against the wall made no sense. Uh, Or the times where he couldn't get what he wanted in in the room, and he would just uh, rail at me, and I would have to excuse myself and leave the room and literally weep. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know he was sick at that point. And it was very tough. And once I did know, then I had to keep it to myself. So there were times where we would have a rehearsal setup. I remember we had a rehearsal setup for Richard White, who was playing Gaston in Beauty and the Beast. And our musical director, David Friedman, set it up. And I get there. Oh, it's on the seventh floor. But uh, the elevator is out, so you have to walk. OK. So I walk up the stairs. And I get to the top. And I go, OK. And then I go, oh, damn. Yeah, and I looked at, looked down the stairs, and Howard's hand is just gr- grasping the rail, and he's going to walk up seven flights of stairs, and I couldn't tell David. Yeah, and Howard got to the top of the stairs. just, "I'm going to kill," David. <laughs> and they took a breath, opened the you know the room to you know door to the rehearsal, and says, "Hi, honey, I'm home," um, and that was the reality. We were, in a way, putting on a show. Yeah. And behind closed doors, it was torture and unreal. It's impossible for me to think about these projects without thinking about Howard.
0: Howard's death was felt acutely around the world and signified the end of a Disney era. His and Alan Menken's contributions to theater and film left a legacy that today remains stronger than ever. You can find their work in such classics as The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, and Aladdin on Disney+. To learn more about the life of Howard Ashman, watch Howard on Disney+, scored by his friend Alan Menken. This is the first episode in a two-part series with Alan. Don't miss the release of part two next month. Follow Disney for scores to stay updated.